Al-Jazeera podcast. So the Ukraine war is nearing its second year. It's been a return to conventional warfare in Europe, which would have been unimaginable only 12 months ago. Germany has come under intense pressure to change its position and allow the supply of its most modern Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. What has been behind Germany's reluctance to allow the supply of Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine? And why are tanks seen as so crucial in the war? I'm Nick Clark, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's bring in our guests now. Joining us live from Wiltshire in the United Kingdom, retired British Major General Arthur Denaro. He's also a former Middle East advisor to the UK Ministry of Defense. From London, Domitila Sagramoso is a senior lecturer in security and development at King's College London. And from Berlin, I'm pleased to say Ben Aris is joining us, the founder and editor-in-chief of BNE Intelli News. A warm welcome to you all. Uh, General Denaro, if I may start with you, uh, because I just want to examine just why there's such an intense focus on this issue of tanks. One might think that tanks are, are part of a, a bygone era, certainly to a layman anyway, because in this age of long-range precision missiles, uh, you'd think that they weren't as potent as they once were. But I presume that's not the case. They're still very valid on the battleground. Yes, very valid. Um, please bear in mind that you're listening to a very uh, ancient armchair general, and <laughs> you need to take that with all with a pinch of salt. So um, having tanks on the battlefield um, contributes to what we called the all-arms battle, it's, and it's the integration of that all-arms battle that makes um, an attacking force or a defending force um, much more potent. Um, the Ukrainians have got some good tanks, um, but, but as we have seen, they're, they're not that much better than the, the Russians, and we have seen how damaged um, the Russians' tanks could be with this latest anti-tank weaponry that Ukraine has been supplied with. These modern tanks, particularly the, the Leopard, the Challenger and the Abrams, all have very sophisticated protection against most of these um, modern weaponry. And having them on the battlefield in support of the infantry and under um, <coughs> the, the long-range support of artillery and air is a game-changer. Right, a game-changer. In what quantity, General, would they be required to be a game-changer, would you say? <laughs> yes, in, in reference to the, the very gallant offer of, of Britain's squadron uh, of tanks, 14 tanks, um, we, we have to look at much greater numbers. Um, way back when um, we, we went to... Um, to rescue Kuwait, to liberate Kuwait from Saddam Hussein's army, we had, uh, the, we, the Allies, had thousands of tanks then. It, the British had over 150 there. Um, so the offer uh, of 14 is is very symbolic, uh, and we were first there doing it, and we hope that this might um, pull the others in, and I hope it does, because 14 is not enough. Indeed. Uh, Donatella, I think I'd be right in saying the tanks would be the most powerful direct weapon provided to Ukraine so far, even though at the moment the numbers fall some way short to what is required, certainly by Ukraine. 
Uh, yes, and of course, to that, we have to add the, the HIMARS, which have proven very effective as a sort of long-range uh, artillery system. So I think we shouldn't forget about, about those as well. And uh, what is interesting is how much the HIMARS you know, really helped uh, to turn the tides in Ukraine's favor. So I think with that, uh, this clearly shows that when tanks or other sort of Western military equipment is delivered to Ukraine, it can really have an impact on the battlefield. That's why the delivery of these uh, tanks is so relevant. Uh, and, and I would agree with the previous speaker that it, it really would help uh, to sort of um, assist Ukraine in trying to sort of carry out more effective offensive operations and also be able to uh, operate uh, more effectively in defensive positions as a kind of also some kind of mob mobile artillery force. Uh, and uh, at the moment, I think this is very important and that it also comes together with uh, additional artillery ammunition and also possibly, you know, fighter jets so that uh, the whole combination of armed forces can operate in a more effective offensive manner. Right. And Ben Aris, what about the Russian capability? What would it mean uh, for the Russian side of things if, you know, conv large convoys of tanks joined a Ukrainian offensive. How would it change things, do you think? I think it would be significant, as the general said, if uh, enough tanks were sent in, a, in number to, to the battlefield. I mean, you have to put this into the context, why is this coming up now? And the battle now has sort of ground down to a stalemate. I mean, in September, we had um, this remarkable offensive, counter-offensive by the Ukrainians in the Kharkiv region, and they broke through the Russian defenses and then went like a knife through butter, um, pushing them back, liberating hundreds of kilometers. And then shortly at the end of that month, they uh, they recaptured Kherson as well. But now, now the fighting has come down. The Russians have done their partial mobilization. They brought 300,000 fresh troops into the uh, into the field. And the front line has stabilized. And, you know, the, the epicenter of the fighting now is around Bakhmut um, in the Donbass region and, and Solidar, which apparently has just fallen to, to the Russian side. Um, but that fight at Bakhmut has been going on for months. And we're talking, you know, a couple of meters a day, if that, and it goes backwards and forwards. And so the two, two sides are now butting heads, but nobody has the advantage. If you were to bring in these powerful tanks, these offensive weapons, then that would make a huge difference if you bring them in in enough number, because then you can smash through the, you can go on the offensive and attack the Russian defenses and push them back. Poland, uh, President Duda Davos yesterday called on the West to send a hundred of these Leopard 2s. And I think there are around 2000 of them scattered throughout Europe and Poland itself has about 250. And a hundred Leopards on the field would make all the difference because again, as the general said that they're about 20 tons heavier than anything the Russians have got, the T-72s, which is the workhorse of the Russian side. And the armor on them is significant. And Russia doesn't have things like the American-made javelins that the Ukrainians had uh, in order to take these tanks out so that they would be a real game changer. And I think that's what people are looking at is like, they're getting frustrated at this deadlock. 100,000 people have died on both sides with no one making any progress. And so the Ukrainians are saying, right, enough with the defensive weapons, with the Patriots, with the javelins that you sent us, these have been very useful. Give us some offensive weapons so that we can actually win this war and push the Russians back over the 1991 borders. Okay, and General, so we Ben alluded to it just then, but any big-scale offensive would, would need, by Ukraine, that is, would need to be backed up by air and ground support, right? 
Yes, that. And of course, the tank gives the ground forces maneuverability, which, um, as Ben's just told us, you know, has ground to a halt. Um, in order to maneuver, we've got to have mobile, well-protected, hard-hitting firepower. And the only thing that can deliver that uh, is the tank. And the Leopard is, is perfectly formed for that one. Um, and of course, it's handy by, so it's it, it's not going to take long to get it into Ukraine, and and it is relatively easy to operate compared to some aspects, certainly of Abrams and and of our Challenger. But it's the maneuverability and the protection that that affords this very hard hitting bit of kit that makes it such a uh, potent force. All right, so that, that's the kind of the battlefield landscape. Donatella, why do you think uh, Germany has been just so reticent, so reluctant in committing to providing these German-made tanks? Well, first of all, it's important to know that the reluctance has come primarily from the Chancellor Olaf Scholz. I think he and, and uh, others in his party are very worried about, uh, about an escalation, about a potential conflict between Russia and NATO and Germany being involved in that. And now I think a bit exaggerated because uh, you know Germany could even start by authorizing uh, the delivery of these leopards by those countries which have them already and that wouldn't necessarily involve Germany itself. Uh, there is a lot of concern in Germany of being seen, uh, you know, in certain quarters as being seen as being sort of part of an of, of a so-called offensive. But I think that is is really uh, the, the wrong approach. But there is, I think, a very strong, in a way, sort of pacifist tradition in Germany. And what is interesting is that uh, Olaf Scholz, you know, in his youth, really was part of this pacifist tradition, and and he was sort of very much a sort of anti-NATO uh, politician. Although, you know, he evolved a lot uh, throughout uh, his political career, and as we know, he gave his famous speech uh, on, uh, you know, in, um, at the start of the war in Ukraine, where he talked about you know, how uh, Germany had to change its course and rearm again in the face of, of the Russian threat. But at the same time, I think there is a very strong reluctance and I think it's probably looking at public opinion, which is slowly shifting and there is increasing support for so-called freeing the leopards. Uh, but I think that, uh, um, you know, deep inside, I think it's very reluctant to, to see Germany because of its history during the Second World War and also during the Cold War, when Germany was divided, occupied uh, by the Soviet Union, and Germany could be a potential theater of war, you know, that this can repeat itself. So there is a very sort of ingrained, deep uh, historical sort of narrative that is strong in certain quarters in Germany uh, that in a way is putting a break. But I think that he's, uh, you know, the chancellor is increasingly under pressure uh, from inside his own coalition by members of the Green Party and the FDP. Yeah, I, ben, I just, let me just bring Ben in there. Is, uh, there are some contradictions here, aren't there? Because you, you have this kind of this German reluctance. But on the other hand, uh, back in February, last year, Olaf Scholz was, you know, announcing this historical turning point for, for Germany uh, to ramp up its defences, which uh, many said that was, um, you know, something extraordinary since they haven't done that since World War II. And, and even today, we're hearing about the, the new German defence minister talking up Germany's need to strengthen defences. 
Yeah, but the key word there is defense. And what mm. we're talking about here is a war with Russia, which is, you know, the tanks are offensive weapons. And, and look, to step back and understand the context of this and why, I mean, as Donatella said, of course, Germany has this history. I mean, it uniquely, almost uniquely in Europe has fought the Russians and lost and doesn't want to repeat that experience. I mean, they're more sensitive than anybody else. But um, the overriding goal of NATO in general and Germany in particular is not to help the Ukrainians beat the Russians, first and foremost. It's, it's first and foremost is to prevent a world war, to prevent a direct conflict between NATO and uh, Russia. No one wants to go there. And that's one of the reasons why we've been pouring in defensive weapons in order to make sure that Ukraine doesn't lose this war, which is not quite the same thing as making sure it wins this war. And we've now reached the point with the stalemate where everyone is getting frustrated and hundreds of thousands of people are dying. Um, so there's now a push to abandon that and to give um, give uh, Ukraine some offensive weapons to actually change the balance. And the reason why Germany in particular is so nervous, because it's unpredictable how the Kremlin will react. Um, so far, Putin's indicated that he hasn't got a problem with NATO uh, supplying defensive weapons in so much as that Russia still has the advantage on the field, both in terms of artillery and men and that he can just grind the Ukrainians down. And if you put offensive weapons that change the, the tide of the war into Ukraine's advantage, then all the new really scary possibilities, including tactical nuclear weapons, appear. And that's really what's behind this hesitancy. And, it, and it's not just Germany. I mean, Jan Stoltenberg from NATO said right at the beginning of this conflict, our top priority is to avoid World War III. Our second priority is to help Ukraine defend itself. And it's doing an amazing job, something that nobody was expecting. Right. General Denaro, do you concur with that? Or, you know, there is the other argument that defeat for Ukraine, that in itself could lead to World War Three. Yes, it could. And it's incredibly difficult to predict which way it's going to fall. And whether the supply of these tanks, which are... Um, in, in, in the main aim, uh, offensive, but also are hugely useful in any form of defensive posture, um, is going to uh, affect that balance. And um, I'm, you know, I, I'm finding it very difficult to predict that. And so, Ben, we talked about the United States there, and, and Germany themselves have said that, you know, the US haven't sent any tanks in. If they do, then, then we will. Uh, why do you think the US is, is reticent as well? It's the same fears. I mean, nobody wants to start Third World War with Russia because then it, you know, it all, a whole, it all becomes extremely unpredictable and um, becomes extremely scary with the nuclear exchange between the major powers. And the, the Americans, too, um, have also followed this policy of supplying largely defensive weapons. Um, the peer pressure amongst the Europeans, and you've got some countries in Europe, like the Polish uh, and the Baltic states in particular, that are very anti-Russian, very pro-Ukraine, want to see these heavy weapons put in. And others um, sitting on the fence, and, and people like Hungary, of course, are, are friends with Putin. But for the Americans, I mean, Schultz is, is trying to pass the buck. He's getting a lot of pressure from all the other EU members, particularly the more aggressive ones, to send these tanks. And Germany has the, um, the largest defense uh, sector in Europe. And so um, everybody's got German weapons and, and you can't export them to Ukraine without German permission. And Schultz said um, this week, I think it was just yesterday, that if the Americans send 
the Abraham uh, tanks, their tanks, then Germany will follow suit. And so he's passing the buck to the Americans. But then the Americans have said, and I think your reporter said that, that they're reluctant to send their tanks too because they're not suitable in the, in the terrain. You know, we're talking about huge flat agricultural land. This is like the perfect terrain for, for tanks and ideal and moreover necessary because there's so little cover. So it sounds a bit like an excuse. And again, on the English side, or the UK side rather, um, they've sent 14 tanks, which is a gesture. Uh, like the general said, you have to send a much, much more. You know, 50, 100 tanks would make a difference. So we're not seeing that too. So everyone's pulling their punches. I think at Ramstein tomorrow, what we'll see is that Schultz will cave to the pressure that he's under, but there'll be a token gesture of a dozen leopards that will be sent from Poland, say, um, in order to take the pressure off to, to do something more to help the Ukrainians. But again, not going far enough, not sending a, a battalion of like 100 tanks that would actually make a big difference on the battlefield because of the fear of provoking Russia to go to the next level, doing mass mobilization, putting a million people into the field and overrunning Ukraine, and then start taking out ammo dumps in, in Poland or really right. extreme reactions like that. And Domitila, just coming back to this point about a potential Russian defeat, especially in the light of what the, the former Russian president, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, has said that the defeat of a nuclear power in a conventional war may trigger a nuclear war. Well, I think that they've been threatening the use of nuclear war now for several months, uh, even before the start of the war. Putin was talking about this risk uh, if uh, there was an attempt on, on Crimea. Uh, by the Ukrainians, I think that, uh, you know, we have to take that into consideration, but it shouldn't be a sort of a self-deterrent. I think that we have to be cautious, but I, I think that it would be highly unlikely that Russia uh, sort of starts uh, uh, sort of a, a major nuclear exchange uh, with, with the West. I mean, there is a possibility they could use, of course, tactical nuclear weapons, but uh, I mean, what would they really achieve? And I think that uh, the Americans have made it clear that if there is a use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, the Americans and NATO would intervene, even with conventional forces, and uh, there would be a very high risk to the regime of, of President Putin. So I think that uh, often many of these uh, um, statements are, are empty threats, but they have to be taken seriously. And as the previous speakers noted, you know, the question of escalation is in everyone's mind. So, you know, there is caution, but at the same time, you know, we now have to consider that we are at this sort of turning point because Russia is ready to mobilize a very high number of, of soldiers. It is engaging its all, its entire sort of um, uh, economic infrastructure and industrial infrastructure towards the war effort, the production of tanks uh, uh, that, you know, and other kinds of military equipment that could be potentially useful uh, very much to Russia in, okay. on the battlefield. Okay, we're just running out of time. So I just want to finally come to, to General Denaro. Uh, sending all these munitions to Ukraine, uh, it crosses my mind that it's not just depleting uh, countries of their own defence capability, and doesn't it make the world a more dangerous place in that sense too? I don't think so. Um, what I think really is important here is that a speed of decision making because there's no doubt that to change the, the, the whole tempo of this conflict and to get it resolved, um, we need to support the Ukrainians with tanks. And um, the Americans can send theirs in. Um, in smaller numbers because clearly the, the, the distances and also 
the training on the Abrams is more difficult. Um, the British have already planned to send um, a squadron, and the, the 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 real answer is for the Leopards to be um, supplied by the various countries who've got them, because they're there on the borders, ready to go, and they are much um, easier, really, to operate. All right, we'll watch closely how this pans out in the coming days. We have to leave it there. Thank you to all our guests, Arthur Dinaro, Domitila Sagomoso, and Ben Aris. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Aisiba Umutlu, Imran Ullah Khan, and Gemma Harris. Studio Sound was by Aston Goodison, and the program was edited by Anuban Saka, Lin Gwyn, and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next edition. Thank you.